the joy of Hello, welcome to the inaugural episode of The Joy of Serious Literature, the internet's newest and therefore least important podcast about the bizarre assortments of words we call literature. My name is Bryant Davis. I will be the bookish nerd who prattles at you for the next 15 or 20 minutes. We begin with something small, a single short story, approximately 16 pages long, by Roberto Bolaño. It's called The Prefiguration of Lalo Cura. And though it is only a dwarf star in Roberto Bolaño's transatlantic literary galaxy, it is, in my humble opinion, quite an impressive star. But first, who even was Roberto Bolaño? Everyone is familiar with the Latin American literary boom of the 1960s and 70s. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Jorge Luis Borges, Pablo Neruda, The General and His Labyrinth, etc., etc. But by the 1990s, the boom was clearly over. But then the vast majority of the literary greats of that moment had died or grown old or had turned to politics, as was the case with Mario Vargas Llosa. In this rudderless literary chaos, it ultimately ended up being Roberto Bolaño, into whose hands the flag of Latin American literature ultimately fell. Bolaño earned this position by basically being more or less the personified embodiment of the entire Latin American experience. He was born in Chile, but he grew up in Mexico, where his father was a truck driver. According to legend, he supposedly returned to Chile as a teenager in order to participate in Salvador Allende's socialist revolution, though even by his own admission, his only contribution was getting briefly arrested during the Pinochet coup. After his release, he then went back to Mexico, where he founded a radical poetry movement that had a habit of bursting into poetry workshops and terrorizing the participants, but then abandoned his foundering movement a couple years later to go to Europe, where he wandered aimlessly until finally settling permanently on the outskirts of Barcelona, where he worked as a night watchman and tourist trap jewelry shop proprietor before finally managing to scrape together a living as a writer pouring out novels, novellas, and short stories up until 2003 when, much to the detriment of world literature, he died of liver failure. Although Bolaño's reign was rather short, it was also very important because Bolaño was not truly a successor to the boom writers, but in many ways their antithesis, a literary Julian the Apostate. The Latin American boom writers were very much writers interested in building a national literature in writing novels that were distinctly and decisively Colombian or Peruvian or Guatemalan. Bolaño was the annihilation of national literature. As he liked to say in interviews, he had no homeland except the Spanish language itself. By the 1990s, and even by the 1980s and 70s, to his mind there were no nations anymore in Latin America. Only one great Latin American diaspora, one great chasm of darkness and torture from which they were all united in trying and often failing, to escape. If 100 Years of Solitude is a melancholy fantasy novel, Bolaño's writings are sort of coy, ironic horror stories. Bolaño is a writer obsessed with evil. Nazis, serial killers, snuff filmmakers, bad writers. But the evils at the center of his writing are rarely present evils. They're distant evils, insidious evils, lurking on the fringes of our societies or our hearts. Hard to define, hard to track down, generally impossible to fight. The sort of evils that can never be conquered by the light, but instead retreat from the light to wage an intractable guerrilla war against what Bolaño sees as the two great bulwarks of the human spirit, friendship and literature. 
In this way, his stories often become like the stories of James Joyce, with the story not being the playing out of a plot so much as the record of a journey to an epiphany, except where there is no epiphany, but instead a momentary encounter with the darkness. The partygoers who walk into the room where Carlos Werther has displayed his supposed poetry, only to realize that his poetry is actually photographs of mutilated corpses. The soccer star who discovers the secret to his team's success is African blood magic. The war gamer who plays out the fall of the Third Reich with the devil in a Catalonian seaside hotel. Some character looks into the heart of darkness, and the heart of darkness, whether a death squad henchman or a hack poet, looks back into them. But not in the prefiguration of Lalo Cura. In Lalo Cura, we, the reader, are the gazer, the hapless fool who has wandered too deeply into the depths. The story is a monologue, told directly at us, the speaker, of course, being the titular Lalo Cura. But what we realize about Cura, almost immediately, is that Lalo Cura is not a person that we should have ever, even within the supposedly safe context of a literary frame, spoken to about anything whatsoever. He says to us, It's hard to believe, but I was born in a neighborhood called Los Empalados, the Impaled. The name glows like the moon. The name opens a way through the dream with its horn. And man follows that path, a quaking path, invariably hard. The path that leads into or out of hell. That's what it all comes down to. Getting closer to hell or further away. Me, for example. I've had people killed. I've given the best birthday presents. I've backed projects of epic proportions. I've opened my eyes in the dark. Once, I opened them by slow degrees in total darkness. And all I saw or imagined was that name, Los Empalados, shining like the star of destiny. What does this paragraph show us? It shows us that what we're dealing with here is a lunatic. What do you mean a star of destiny? What do you mean a horn and a path? In his monologue, Lalo tells us that he was born the bastard son of an actress, active in the Colombian porn business, in what seems like the 1970s or perhaps even into the 1980s. He tells us about how his mother came into the porn business, about her life of disappointment, trying to make it as an actress in New York City, about how she met the German director, Helmut Bittrich, at a party, who would eventually send images of her naked body around the world. He tells us about how they became like a family, hanging around Bittrich's home on the edge of Los Empalados, eating canned food between takes in the backyard, little Lalo, playing with Bittrich's pet geese, while the theatrical moans of his mother emanated out through the cracks in the house's exterior walls. What he focuses on most, though, are the films themselves. A large portion of the story, even perhaps a majority, is just detailed image-by-image descriptions of the films Bittrich made. And it is while reading these descriptions that you realize that this is a story about much, much more than just growing up in the porno business. Because the pornography they were making wasn't just pornography. wasn't just an assortment of sex acts, raw and unadorned, one after another, like with all the mounds and mounds of sexual detritus that make up the half of the internet that isn't clickbait. Let me read you one of the descriptions. Another movie, Ferryman. From the ruins, you might think it's about life in Latin America after the Third World War. The girls wander through garbage dumps along deserted paths. Then there's a broad, gently flowing river. Pajarito Gomez and two other guys play cards by the light of a candle. The girls come to an inn where the men are carrying guns. 
They make love with all of them, one after another. They look out from the bushes at the river and a few pieces of wood tied clumsily together. Pajarito Gomez is the ferryman. At least that's what everyone calls him. But he doesn't budge from the table. He holds the best cards. The villains remark on how well he's playing. What a good player the ferryman is. What good luck the ferryman has. Gradually, the supplies begin to run short. The cook and the kitchen hand torture Doris, penetrating her with the handles of enormous butcher's knives. Hunger reigns over the inn. Some stay in bed. Others wander through the bushes looking for food. While the men fall ill one by one, the girls scribble in their diaries as if possessed. Desperate pictograms. Images of the river superimposed on images of a never-ending orgy. The end is predictable. The men dress the women up as chickens, make them do their tricks, and then proceed to eat them at a feather-strewn banquet. The bones of Connie, Monica, and Doris lie on the diner's patio. Pajarito Gomez plays another hand of poker. He wears his luck like a loose-fitting glove. The camera is behind him, and the viewer can see the cards he's holding. They are blank. The credits appear over the corpses of all the actors. Three seconds before the end of the film, the river changes color, turning jet black. That one was especially deep, Doris used to say. What Bittrick was making in his crappy house in a crappy slum of some crappy city in Colombia was something approaching art. One of the reasons I began with Bolaño is that Bolaño is the writer who I think best understands the way that art exists in our world, what it does to people, how it comes out of people. And you have in Bittrick a true embodiment of the artist. Bittrick is a businessman making shoestring budget pornography in exchange for the most meager of profits. And yet he cannot just make pornography. He has to make something aesthetic. He has to follow the lines of some vision inside his head. He has to make his movies into films. He can't just have people having sex with each other. There have to be resurrections and men dressed as condors and inexplicable pastoral scenes like in the film Hecatome where a beautiful woman walks slowly along the bank of a river accompanied solely by a large goose. Why? Because it is beautiful. Because it is delightful. Because Helmut Bittrick, lost in the desert of Columbia's slums, has a vision about what pornography could be, about what it should be. Now, I use the description of the ferryman specifically because it mentions Pajarito Gomez. As Lalo tells us of his pornography-adjacent youth, he becomes fixated on the actor, Pajarito Gomez, who he says was the lost acting genius of his age. He says even though Pajarito had an average penis, even though he had a lumpy body, there was a way that he would vibrate. That's the word Lalo uses. Vibrate. In such a way as to hold the watcher transfixed. Even when Pajarito is in the corner of the screen, even when he is lurking in the background while the most obscene of sex acts is perpetrated in the foreground, he is the center. He is the punctum. It is while reading all these descriptions that you begin to realize that what Lalo has been doing for the last 15 years or so to occupy his time is re-watching these films, obsessively, compulsively, watching his mother get penetrated again and again in all of her myriad of orifices, watching Bittrick superimpose semen-covered cocks over the ruins of civilization, watching Pajarito vibrate in the corner. Watching Pajarito penetrate his mother. Watching Pajarito penetrate his mother while she was pregnant with his fetus. He even claims how, as a fetus in his mother's womb, he could see Pajarito's penis brushing up against his eyes. What sort of insanity is that? What does that do to a person? The answer is never made precise. 
The prefiguration of Lalo Kira is not a speech to the judge about how some childhood abuse led some poor unfortunate soul to ruin. Evil to Bolaño is something incomprehensible, a form of madness that cuts through the frail skin of our world. In this way, it is the same as art, as real art, as the snuff of genius. In this way, Bittrick and Lalo are the same. They are both people of vision. They both can look out across the world in front of them and see the harmonies invisible to others. Bittrick, a man of kindness and warmth and human feeling, reaches out his hand in the hopes of showing those harmonies to others. Lalo, though, a little less altruistic a little more twisted by nature and circumstance, seems to have other, more sinister designs. Suddenly, on the turn of a comma, Lalo informs us that Pajarito is the only one from the days of Bittrex Olympio Film Company to still be alive. The rest, he says, are dead, and then describes in a long list everyone's fate, how they were killed in bar brawls, or shot in the street in some slum, or died of AIDS, or died by suicide, or died by being beaten to death by the police but not Pajarito. Pajarito continues to live and live and live. I went looking for him on a whim, Lalo tells us, just because I felt like it. I went looking for him and I found him in 1999. It was easy. It took less than a week. Pajarito was 49 then, but he looked at least 10 years older. He wasn't surprised to find me sitting on his bed when he got home. I told him who I was, reminded him of the movies he'd made with my mother and my aunt. Pajarito took a chair, and as he sat down, the videos fell out from under his arm. You've come to kill me, Lalito, he said. Monologues don't really have narrative climaxes. Instead, they sort of reach crescendos of tonal intensity. This meeting in Pajarito's tiny apartment, this scene where they talk about the old days and the old films, where Pajarito shifts in his chair, where he looks at the floor, where he mumbles under his breath again and again, etc., etc., becomes that crescendo, becomes this moment where everything, even the air flowing in and out of your lungs, feels obscenely tense. You are there watching as the devil himself walks into the room and begins to chat about old porno movies, telling Pajarito how he saw his penis pressed against his eye in the womb, knowing that Lalo is a killer, knowing that he is a lunatic, knowing at an instant the world could burst into annihilation. And yet it doesn't. And doesn't and doesn't, and doesn't. Instead, finally, as one of Pajarito's Tarso movies silently rolls in the background, as Pajarito stares back at Lalo with a stone-faced dumbness, the whole apartment, Lalo tells us, begins to vibrate, and that, in response to this vibration, he got up, very carefully, and left. That's it. We're done. The curtain falls. What is that vibration? What is wrapped up in this idea that seems to exist beyond the capacity of any human action? Why does it not emanate from Pajarito, but from the room itself? It is unclear. It is everything and nothing. It is not even really clear whether or not Pajarito survives. Lalo Kira says he's not going to kill Pajarito, but then leaves, carefully, as if tiptoeing over spatters of blood. Is the reason everyone from his pornography youth is dead because Lalo killed them? Did he hang David Salazar in his Honduran hotel room? Did he shoot Guillermo Montes in that brawl? Like all great moments of unclarity, all great ambiguous endings, the ending swells like a souffle to fill all possible possibilities. It is hard to know what to make of a story like the prefiguration of Lalo Cura. 
It's not a morality tale so much as an encounter with the devil. It's not a story so much as a man talking at you. It doesn't have a plot so much as it has descriptions of plots. But yet it's still marvelous. But yet it haunts you. It makes you look at film differently. It makes you look at pornography differently. It makes you look at the way that people talk to you about their lives differently. Bob Bolaño is not Nabokov, seducing you with ecstatic language, nor is he Gabriel Garcia Marquez, elevating you into some heightened world. He is a writer of this world, of this language, of talking and conversing, of boredom and perversity, of common crime and common literature. I once read a review of Bolaño's work in the New York Times, I think, where they said Bolaño was the only great modern novelist, utterly disinterested in the quality of his sentences. That's hyperbole, of course. But there's no denying that Bolaño is a simple stylist. He's simple, though, because what he's about as a writer is something entirely different than the ecstatic fantasies of his Latin American predecessors. The fantasy of Latin America is over. The fantasy of literature is over. But that's all right. The world we live in doesn't need ships run aground in fields of flowers to be interesting any more than Pride and Prejudice needed zombies. What Bolaño does, I think, is remind us that the world we live in is already heightened, full of evil, full of lunatics, full of beauty, full of Nazis, full of poets and monsters. All we have to do is open our eyes, slowly, by degrees, in the complete darkness, and look. You can find a copy of The Prefiguration of La Locura in Roberto Bolaño's short story collection, The Return, translated by Chris Andrews, and published by New Directions Paperbacks. Even though, on the whole, the return isn't quite as good, in my humble opinion, as his other short story collection, Last Nights on Earth, it is still a pretty damn good collection. In addition to Lalo Cura, it has a really great story about necrophilia that's definitely worth reading. My name is Bryant Davis. This has been the inaugural episode of The Joys of Serious Literature. I hope you'll join me again in about, oh, two or three weeks, depending on how things go when we'll be talking about the most recent winner of the Man Booker Prize, Hong Kong's The Vegetarian, a novel about how a woman becoming a vegetarian ruins the lives of everyone around her. Thank you, and Godspeed.